Your resistance is rational. I understand. You don't have to do anything. But if you don't, then you have to stay here. And this is the choice that you're making. You tell me what you want to do. Rodney Evans had a successful career in the business world, but after a decade of living with a company culture that stifled innovation and working in environments that struggled to sustain health, she was ready for a change. So she quit. There was always discussion about new ideas and new ways of working and new things to try. And then like, there wasn't really an ability to influence much or to do much. Today, Rodney's career is centered around solving the same problems she spent 10 years facing. Rodney is also the host of Brave New Work, a podcast that teaches executive leaders how to embrace a more adaptive and human way to work. Rodney is also a partner at The Ready, an organizational design consultancy. In today's episode, she shares her wisdom for creating a thriving culture of innovation. Welcome to Future Nonprofit, a podcast about what it will take to build and scale the nonprofit of tomorrow. I'm Ted Vaughn, partner at Historic and author of Culture Built My Brand. Join me as we unpack the stories and lessons of today's most innovative leaders. Your working journey, you've had quite a journey. It's brought you to this amazing place where you add tremendous value to organizations in ways that often organizations don't even know they need value added. What's the journey that's taken you from corporate to this? Mostly frustration and disappointment and heartbreak is the journey. I got really good jobs out of school and honestly, even internships and things like that. I was very fortunate. I had this feeling about 10 years into my career of like, I have gotten the things that people want to get. Like I am on the path that I worked to be on and it was deeply dissatisfying. And it became really clear to me that this sort of traditional ladder climbing, title seeking, wealth creating thing was not going to do it for me because in the environments I was working in, there was not room for a lot of creativity, a lot of autonomy. There was always discussion about new ideas and new ways of working and new things to try. And then like there wasn't really an ability to influence much or to do much. There are times when we all find ourselves in jobs where the constraints hold us back or frustrate us. That's typically when we either decide to put our heads down and push through or start looking for a new job. Rodney had a better idea. She found a third way. She wanted to change the game. I think a big tipping point for me was I worked at an investment bank, and the last year that I was there, I worked on a couple of pretty big transactions. The Wolf of Wall Street, they call me. And what I realized in getting to see due diligence from that perspective, I had seen it from other angles before, is that where things fall apart, whether you're talking about a change management initiative or M&A or a programmatic approach to performance management or anything sort of big system-y is in the system design. It's in the how. It's not that the people are lazy. It's not that they're stupid. It's not that they're not trained well. It's not that the plan is flawed. It's that we're working in complexity and there is no attention paid to how we are actually going to work differently when we sell this business or when we do this performance plan or when we try this change initiative. We think that the what, the content of the thing will get us the juice and it won't. And so I just got to a point of frustration where I was like, I can't do this anymore. And then I quit my job and then I married my husband and we traveled around the world for a year. These dynamics are so common in the nonprofit space. 
Nonprofit leaders almost always have big vision, passion, and intensity, but often neglect the how of their organizations. It's really easy to overfocus on the growth above the ground and miss the condition of the soil in which everything is growing. Rodney discovered that an organization's process and culture will essentially be the defining element of whether things work effectively or not. While this is true for every organization, nonprofits could be uniquely guilty of presuming that their organization's culture is healthy. Why? Because everyone cares so much. Everyone bleeds for the cause and mission. But care and passion for the cause actually require even greater commitment to building and sustaining a healthy culture. In some cases, I think the mission orientation and the clarity of purpose does actually make it harder. That coherence around the purpose can really paper over a lot of the systemic dysfunction. Having a strong sense of shared mission and passion for the cause can be a highly motivating force for employees, but it can also introduce some common dysfunctions that, while in every type of organization, are especially true in nonprofits. Because employees tend to be intrinsically motivated to pursue the mission, there is a sense that they don't need as much external compensation. This can lead to low pay and the expectation that employees work to the point of burnout. A sincere focus on the cause of the nonprofit can end up blinding leaders to the cultural and systemic issues that ultimately lead to dysfunction and toxic cultural soil. Let's get back to Rodney's journey. She had just recently quit her job and taken space to travel and think about her next steps. It was in giving herself that space that she had a breakthrough about organizational culture and process. When I came back, I sort of fell into doing a lot of coaching work. I worked at the McChrystal Group as their chief innovation officer. My team did a lot of the research behind the book Team of Teams. And in many ways, like that job... I had the luxury for a few years of budget and freedom and someone saying like, go figure out what an adaptable organization is. Go figure out what the skills under adaptive leadership are. And I mean, that's a dream. And so it was basically like two years of education for me in what the future should be. Notice how Rodney's path changed. She took space to think and then had the chance to explore those thoughts and ideas, putting them into practice as the chief innovation officer at the McChrystal Group. With that experience under her belt, she was ready to take her expertise and share it with as many organizations as possible. Eventually, she became a partner at The Ready, an organizational design consultancy for Fortune 500 companies and co-host of Brave New Work. Rodney's experiences led her to recognize the need for innovation in the workplace. Does your nonprofit need to make similar changes? Is it possible that you're missing some of the signs? In organizations, on one end of a spectrum, you have bureaucracy. Hello, Peter. What's happening? Uh, we have sort of a problem here. Yeah, you apparently didn't put one of the new cover sheets on your TPS reports. And usually in bureaucracy, there is too much complication. So the pain points that you hear in bureaucracy is like, we're spending our time servicing the bureaucracy and like servicing the policies and the constraints and rules that we've made for ourselves that don't really contribute. That's on one end of the spectrum. And on the other end of the spectrum, where you have really like early or high growth or DAOs or whatever, you have like chaos. 
I always joke like on the chaotic end, it's like a body with no bones. And so it's just a mess. So the pain points there tend to be more like, we have an influencing culture. We don't know who can say yes to things. There's no clear way that decisions get made. Information isn't transparent. And the reasons behind those things are often different at the ends of the spectrum, but the symptoms, you know, still appear. In Rodney's experience, calling out the symptoms is the easy part. Doing something to address them is where things get hard. Taking the leap to shake things up and think differently can invoke a lot of fear. And that fear is what inevitably leads to stagnation, allowing problems to get worse. A lot of times leaders do come because of pain they're feeling and then also need to be convinced of what needs to change. It's human nature, right? It's like, you know, this hurts and then you go to the doctor and the doctor says, do exercises. And you're like, mm, that's not that's not actually what we wanted to hear. And so, you know, we hear all kinds of tensions and pain points from leaders. And then when we say, okay, well, the way out of this is to change how you're working. You know, we need to change how you're meeting, change how you're tooling, change how you're making agreements, change how you're making decisions, change how you're steering strategy. And they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I thought you were going to give me a PowerPoint deck. And I'm like, dude, I'll give you one, but that's not going to change anything for you. Resistance is a huge hurdle, but Rodney meets resistance with empathy. Right now in this moment, I feel like there is a universal exhaustion taking place. If you don't think there's hope for the world, why bother going on? A lot of people, for a lot of reasons, have been in survival mode for the last bunch of years. And there's just been like so much environmental chaos. And now I just mostly take the tact of like, your resistance is rational. I understand. You don't have to do anything. But if you don't, you then you have to stay here. And this is the choice that you're making. You tell me what you want to do. While innovation is a muscle that needs to be consistently exercised and strengthened, many of today's best innovations have come from moments of crisis requiring adaptation. The distinction between innovation and adaptation is important to understand, but as Rodney explained, you also have to simultaneously recognize how the two work together. The work that we do on systems is with the intention of creating systems that are more adaptive and more human. And what we mean by adaptive is a term that my business partner Aaron coined in Brave New Work, which is complexity conscious. What we want to see is complex organizations that are conscious of their complexity. And what we mean by that is that they don't have such calcified structures and systems and org charts and ways of working that they can't shift when the environment shifts. So that's what I would consider an adaptive system. And to me, Adaptation requires experimentation, and experimentation is almost always innovation. So I sort of think of those things as birds of a feather. What I don't particularly love to see, just like I don't like to see change or transformation separated from the work, I don't like to see innovation separated from the work. Like I'm a big believer in trying new things 
in the context of where the customer is, where the product's being developed, and having a portfolio of bets or innovations or of experiments that are being run and understanding some of them are going to be incremental and some of them are going to be really big swings. And that's what a healthy innovation portfolio should be. But to me, the adaptive system is required to be able to do that work well. Because otherwise you end up with an innovation office of like weirdos in a different campus with, you know, like uh, like on beanbag chairs, like just thinking about the future. And there's nothing wrong with that. I've been one of those weirdos. But <laughs> it's really hard to integrate what they come up with and make use of it, even if it's amazing. Innovation and adaptation are no longer optional. But because so many people misunderstand these ideas, they fail to add the value that any organization needs in today's rapid pace of change. Let's take a closer look at the differences and similarities between them. Here's a great example. The pandemic forced organizations to quickly rethink the idea of the office or the workplace, leading to significant and rapid change in the day-to-day reality of work. That was a reaction, an adaptation to crisis forced upon us in order to survive. Now, forced adaptation can be a powerful way to innovate, but innovative cultures are proactive in their approach and application of innovation. When organizations are proactive in experimentation, in piloting new ideas, in taking measured risks, they're better prepared for those moments of crisis and forced change. A lot of times when I talk to leaders about experimentation, they're like, shh, shh, we don't like this. Like <laughs> You're freaking me out. And then once they get into the work of really doing looping, like really sensing what attention or opportunity is, really defining what a clarified, time-bound, safe-to-try experiment is, really reflecting and learning, shedding what's not working, scaling what is working. Generally then the feedback is like, oh, this is actually far more disciplined than the way that we usually do this, but they have a little bit of an allergy to experimentation. So first and foremost, leaders I often hear say that they want innovation and even maybe say that they want experimentation, but the lived experience of not having a plan is deeply unsettling for them. And it's like, you're just not going to plan your way into experimentation. Like you have to take the approach of having a hypothesis, having a clear way of testing it and understanding that if it's a good hypothesis, if it's an interesting hypothesis, then it has the possibility to fail. Allowing room for failure is critical, but to really work, leaders at every level have to fully embrace the idea. I think a lot of what is required from senior leadership is a mindset that like they can all be winners, Failure is an actual thing. I feel like particularly the tech industry loves to talk about failure and actually only celebrates like wild success <laughs> in a way that just doesn't really like square for me. And then I think the hardest thing that I have a lot of compassion for is I've worked with a number of very senior leaders who are on the hook for delivering innovative solutions within their function and their leadership does not want to see failure or waste or delays that, you know, they want you to be really, really creative on time and on budget and have 10 out of 10 be experiments that move the portfolio forward. And I think it's really hard to be in that position where you're trying to hold space for your team to like get wild while you have all this external pressure that's like missteps will not be tolerated. Taking big risks is a lot of pressure, but so is expecting big leaps where there isn't space to fail. True innovation is more than tinkering with surface-level creativity. 
It requires a culture of innovation that recognizes the value of risk-taking, experimentation, and failure. And for that culture to thrive, you need to examine the structures and processes in place and redesign them to support innovation. That might involve making some big back-end changes in order to encourage and make space for true genius ideas. An amazing example of this in the for-profit world comes from Rodney's podcast, Brave New Work. She had a fascinating conversation on this topic with Bill Anderson, the CEO of Roche. We said, all right, we, we want a budget process that doesn't encourage gaming, mm-hmm. doesn't encourage cost center managers to hoard their budgets. Right. Uh, and as we talked through their proposal, we realized we're stuck. I mean, basically, <laughs> those, those behaviors were inherent in the budget process because it's a budget process. And it was literally at that meeting, I can still remember the, the place where we decided, you know, the only way to slay the beast is to stop the budget process. You know, so mm-hmm. we basically killed budgeting for a large part of our organization that year. The next year, we, we killed budgets in, in another large area because we realized, you, yeah, you can't stop the, the bad behavior if you have a flawed process. There's so much value in doing retrospectives on your projects to learn what worked well and what didn't. But you also need to retro your processes to learn where you're weak, what you need to change, and quite possibly what process might need to be killed. The thing with process is that it needs to constantly evolve. But to evolve in an effective way, it needs to have a solid and thoughtful foundation. When an organization begins, it often has a culture of just get things done which can get you where you need to go at first. But that approach is about building a temporary foundation, not a strong and stable foundation that can withstand growth and scale. The longer an organization clings to that initial just get things done mindset, the more severe problems it'll have as they try and scale and innovate later. It's really easy when you're scaling quickly to ignore the how, of work and to feel like you can just be really organic in terms of how communication happens or how decisions get made. And I do understand that feeling, you know, like especially when you have a certain amount of like investment runway or you're trying to find product market fit and you don't have it or, you know, it's it's hard. It's really hard to be at that phase of a company. But what I find is a lot of startup founders and CEOs who are trying to scale are really unwilling to spend any time thinking about, we should write down some roles. We should clarify some decision rights, like who can say yes to what so that every single decision about the business isn't coming to the CEO. We should think about our meeting structure and we should make time to get together and have a productive meeting. I just, I know I know you can't overdo it when you are trying to scale something and there is pressure and urgency. And if you don't build any of that scaffolding at the beginning, it gets hard later. It gets hard to go from something that is like just an amoeba to being like a body with a skeleton. And so I'm always a fan of like minimum viable structure. Like what are the minimum team agreements, ways of working, clarified roles, decision rights that your team needs to function? And if you have any constraints or rules or agreements written down that you don't actually need, get rid of them. Like don't service anything that you don't need, but don't 
ignore the fact that like human beings do need rules to play a game and creating those in a participatory way will get you outsized value. Let's say at this point, you've been able to create a budding culture of innovation. The next trick is to make it sustainable. Rodney offered some strategies you can use to keep your culture of innovation thriving. We talk a lot in our work about containers and creating the containers in a team or system for particular types of work. So what kind of pisses me off is when people just talk about mindsets, but there's no system design to hold the mindset. It's like, you know, be a, act like an owner. Like, what does that mean? Like, what am I supposed to do? You know, like, what does that mean on Monday? Me acting like an owner. Like, it just feels manipulative. Anyway, that was an aside. If you're trying to do an innovation thing, I'm like, okay, what? where are we putting that? So are we doing, as a team, are we doing something like a monthly retrospective where we talk about what's gone on and talk about how the experiments from the last month have played and then generate new tensions and new experiments? Like, how are we reflecting and learning and integrating as a team? That's a big one. How are we sensing what is happening in the ecosystem? A lot of times we get called in to do workshops and there will be a question about, you know, the broader market or innovation or externalities and there's not a lot of muscle in a lot of systems for like what is happening out there that you should be paying attention to? And frankly, I think it creates a lot of paranoia. People are like, oh, chat GPT, like everyone is saying that that means something for my business. What does it mean? Rodney, what does it mean? And I'm like, well, what it like, what is the container for us to talk about chat GPT with the team? Where is the meeting? Where is the place? Where is the team? Where is the project where we can run 10 one week experiments using chat GPT in our work and then come back together and reflect on what we learn. Like we have to have a place to put it or else it's just noisy and stressful. Take a moment to think about where container opportunity exists within your organization. Is there a monthly meeting? Are there category containers like fundraising, new tech and AI, where you can question what you know, unpack trends and run experiments? Because that's what keeps innovation flowing. That's how you get to the fun part where new ideas are sparked and innovations are launched. Here's Rodney with a story about a simple thing she suggested to one of her clients. When I've done some of this work in companies, what is always really heartening and really interesting is when you give people a container and you say, you know, I remember facilitating an innovation session for a client and they were really unhappy with their mobile app. And I was like, okay, we're going to do this session and I'm going to use this kind of facilitation and blah, 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 blah. We're going to do some warm-up stuff to get creative. But in the two weeks before, I want you guys to do a little bit of research and download a few e-commerce apps. They don't need to be in your space. We're not looking at competitors. I just want you to find the best ones and just be in them a little bit between now and then. When we came together, I remember the leader of this session being like, these people are not innovative people. And the truth was, no one had really asked them to think in these ways very specifically or to bring their opinions to bear or to look critically at the product that they were building. And when we got to a session and they had spent two weeks in the Nordstrom app, they had super hot takes and super smart contributions and like made huge pivots in an afternoon that I think we just underestimate people. Let's 
talk about where you're going next. You've already covered such incredible ground. You've done incredible work. You've offered tremendous value, but you're you're not slowing down. What does innovation and change look like in your world? And what, what are you chasing? And, and what should we expect from you in the next two to three years? I'm glad you asked, Ted. Yeah, we have some pretty big aspirations for the next few years. So Aaron and I have a podcast that's called Brave New Work. We are always thinking about how to continue to evolve that. And we have some pretty exciting ideas for the rest of this year. We are also working on a book, as I mentioned, which will likely be released in 2024 that will be all about agreement making. And at the ready, there are two big things that are underway right now that I'm super excited about. One is offerings like the future of HR. Rather than trying to change ways of working just through coaching new ways of working, taking more of a perspective on where an organization should be heading in our opinion based on what we know about the future of work. And we are doing more and more work around product and content so that we can serve more organizations that aren't huge. So because we tend to work with the Fortune 500, because of complexity and budgets and appetite and things like that, we leave a lot on the table in terms of organizations that really need this work and really want this work. And so we are now really for the first time trying to figure out what the bundles of product and service and content offerings are that are more accessible to different market segments. All right. Let's recap everything we've learned down to the key takeaways. First, create time and space to think. Rodney took a year, but that's probably not realistic for most leaders. Still, commit to setting aside time to research what's ahead in the area your nonprofit lives, whether that's matching adoptive parents with foster kids or helping stabilize climate change. That's how you start creating space for innovation. You take time and space to think. Second, Kill bureaucracy wherever it has your people serving systems instead of the systems serving your people. Too much bureaucracy robs your team of the space and time they need to innovate. And third, to be innovative, you need space to experiment. Think about the containers. Don't just try new things, but instead develop a process of experimentation so you can test theories and ideas, revisit what worked and what didn't, and create new steps to implement new innovations. I'm Ted Vaughn, and this is Future Nonprofit. If you want to hear more stories from experts in the industry to learn how to take your nonprofit into the future, subscribe to the podcast and visit makehistoric.com. Future Nonprofit is a production of Lower Street and Historic Agency. Produced by Jackie Lamport, Mark Miller, Ben Crannell, James Bladel, and Ted Vaughn. Written by Jackie Lamport and Katie Whitehorn. Edited by Ben Crannell. Visit futurenonprofit.com for a transcript of this episode.